words. Do you know when the voice is gonna speak? Sometimes. What does it say? It said it wants to hurt you. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. There are things that go bump in the night, and we are the ones who bump back. I see dead people. Somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, Intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Or do our lights wander a lifeless cosmos? I couldn't help at one point in our discussions with General Secretary Gorbachev. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held. If suddenly there was a threat to this world from another planet, outside in the universe. Well, I don't suppose we can wait for some alien race to come down and threaten us, but I think that between us, we can bring about that realization. Hello and welcome, Crypt Keeper Army. Welcome to the season one finale of Cryptique. Ryan and I really appreciate you listening, subscribing, telling a friend, and rating the show. You have made this a fantastic first season. We have tried to cover all of the bases, but you have responded in mass that you like the paranormal shows the best. Tonight, we're going to tackle The Conjuring Universe. The Conjuring trilogy of horror movies are successful, frightening, and in my opinion, well done. The Conjuring Universe is rooted in the investigations of Ed and Lorraine Warren. You probably know who they are if you're listening to this podcast, but Ed was considered a demonologist and Lorraine claimed to be a psychic medium. Their investigations are controversial, but remember, just because you saw it in the movie doesn't necessarily mean the Warrens claimed it went down that way. As with all movies based on true stories, liberties are taken. If you haven't seen the movies, there will be spoilers in this episode. Just to reiterate, in my opinion, the movies are some of the best recent horror movies out there and would stand alone, even if completely fictional. The movies have grossed over $2.1 billion worldwide and have met with mostly favorable reviews aside from La Llorona, which is only related to the Conjuring movies by the character of Father Perez, who also appeared in Annabelle. The Conjuring universe, including the timeline and release dates, are as follows. The Nun took place in 1952 and was released in 2018. Annabelle Creation took place in 1955 and was released in 2017. Annabelle took place in 1967 and was released in 2014. The Conjuring took place in 1971 and was released in 2013. Annabelle Comes Home took place in 1972 and was released in 2019. And the aforementioned The Curse of La Llorona took place in 1973 and was released in 2019. That's one I probably wouldn't waste your time on. But uh, The Conjuring 2, based on the Enfield poltergeist, was uh, it took place in 1977 and was released in 2016. And The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, released in 2021, actually took place in 1981. The Conjuring is based on a true story. 
However, the film is not based on the trilogy House of Darkness, House of Light. It is instead based upon the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Andrea Perrin wrote a letter to horrormovies.ca in June of 2013 stating that there are liberties taken and a few discrepancies, but overall it is what it claims to be, based on a true story, believe it or not. In 1971, Roger and Carolyn Perrin move into a farmhouse in Rhode Island with their five daughters. This is the plot summary for the movie. In 1971, Roger and Carolyn Perrin move into a farmhouse in Rhode Island with their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. Their dog, Sadie, refuses to enter the house. They discover the entrance to a cellar which has been boarded up. Paranormal events occur within the first few nights. Every clock in the house stops at 3.07 a.m. Birds fly into their windows. Sadie is found dead in the morning, and Carolyn wakes up with large bruises. One night, Christine encounters a malevolent spirit. Another night, Carolyn hears clapping in the hallway and becomes trapped in the basement. Andrea and Cindy are attacked in their bedroom by a spirit believed to be the one that Christine had encountered. Carolyn contacts demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren, who have recently investigated a possessed doll called Annabelle. The Warrens agree to take the case and conduct an initial investigation, during which Lorraine, a clairvoyant, sees that dark forces have latched onto the Perrin family and leaving the house will not free them. To gather evidence, they place cameras, recorders, and bells around the house with the help of their assistant, Drew Thomas, and a police officer, Brad Hamilton. Further research reveals that the house once belonged to an accused witch named Bathsheba Sherman. She sacrificed her baby to the devil and killed herself in 1863 at 3.07 in the morning, cursing all who take her land. They find reports of numerous murders and suicides through the years in the houses that were built on the property. One morning, Bathsheba appears to Carolyn and vomits black bile into her mouth, fully possessing her. Lorraine sees Bathsheba's corpse hanging in the tree behind the house. That night, from the EVPs coming from the radio, the group hears a spirit luring Cindy into the wardrobe, where she reveals a secret passage. So what's an EVP? An EVP is pretty simple. Uh, people, ghost hunters, paranormal investigators take a digital recorder, or in those days they would have taken a, you know, a tape recorder, and they basically ask questions out loud and believe that spirits can communicate through the recording device and it's it's able to record sounds that are are disembodied basically and we can't hear them with our own ears but for whatever reason they show up on the tape or the digital recorder lorraine enters the passage and falls through the floorboards to the cellar where she sees the spirit of a woman whom bathsheba had possessed long ago and used to kill her child lorraine loses a locket containing a picture of the warren's daughter judy bathsheba attacks nancy the incident is caught on camera the warrens conclude it is sufficient evidence to receive authorization from the catholic church to perform an exorcism on the house not on the people on the house the parent family decides to take refuge at a motel while ed and lorraine take their evidence to father gordon their liaison at the catholic church father gordon explains that the approval for the exorcism would have to come directly from the vatican because the parent family aren't members of the church judy is attacked in the warrens own home remember Judy is their daughter, by Bathsheba, who was sitting on a chair and used Annabelle, before being narrowly saved by her father, Ed. Annabelle returns to the box and Bathsheba returns to her own land. Carolyn takes Christine and April back to the house to kill them. 
Ed, Lorraine, and Brad find Carolyn in the cellar trying to stab Christine as Roger and Drew fight to stop her. Lorraine warns Ed, Roger, and Drew that if they take Carolyn outside the house, Bathsheba will kill her. The group tied Carolyn to a chair inside. Ed decides that the exorcism cannot wait and decides to attempt it himself. Though Carolyn escapes and attempts to kill April, Lorraine is able to call to Carolyn by reminding her of a special memory she shared with her family, allowing Ed to complete the exorcism and save them. This lifts Bathsheba's curse, forcing her to reveal herself to those present and damning her to hell. After expelling Bathsheba from Carolyn's body, the parent family reunites. April gives Lorraine the locket that she lost in the cellar. Returning home, Ed adds the haunted music box from the farmhouse to their room of cursed artifacts that they have collected from past cases. If it's unclear or you haven't uh, followed Ed and Lorraine Warren, basically they take at least one what they consider haunted item from each investigation that they do. And they store them for safekeeping in their home museum, which they charge people to come and look at. So take Mm -hmm. that however you want. Yeah. How long did the Perrin family live in the Rhode Island farmhouse? The real Perrin family lived in the farmhouse for approximately 10 years, located in the small country town of Harrisville, Rhode Island. Did Lorraine Warren and the real Perrin family support the making of the movie? Yes. Research into The Conjuring revealed that the paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren acted as a consultant to director James Wan and the filmmakers. The film itself was mostly inspired by she and Ed Warren's case files and recordings dealing with the 1970s Perrin family haunting. The entire Perrin family also put their support behind the film, having already come together to support daughter Andrea Perrin's self-published 2011 book about their experience titled House of Darkness, House of Light. In the movie, and according to the Warrens, a long-dead witch named Bathsheba Sherman was the evil spirit attacking the Perrin family. Who was the real Bathsheba Sherman? The most haunting spirit in the movie is that of a suspected witch Bathsheba Sherman. Born Bathsheba Thayer in Rhode Island in 1812, she married fellow Rhode Islander Judson Sherman in 1844. Bathsheba filled the role of housewife while her husband Judson worked as a farmer on their land. Bathsheba and Judson had a son, Herbert L. Sherman, when Bathsheba was approximately 37 years old in 1849. It is possible that they had three other children as well, all of whom did not survive past the age of seven. Was Bathsheba Sherman really a witch? There's no hard evidence to support that Bathsheba Sherman was really a witch, only legend and folklore. Having lived on a neighboring farm in the 1800s, suspicion grew when an infant mysteriously died in her care. It was determined that the mortal wound was caused by a large sewing needle that had been impaled at the base of the child's skull. Though the townspeople believed that Bathsheba sacrificed the infant as an offering to the devil, Due to insufficient evidence, a court found that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. Had this happened 50 years earlier, she probably would have been burned at the stake. Yeah. Despite her name being cleared legally, the public was not convinced. It's widely rumored that Bathsheba treated the help badly and that she starved and beat her Sherman farm staff. How did Bathsheba die? Bathsheba Sherman died as an old woman on May 25th of 1885, roughly four years after her husband Judson Sherman's death in 1881. 
Various articles online will have you believe that her body literally turned to stone when she died, or that Bathsheba died from a bizarre form of paralysis that puzzled and frightened doctors. Their basis is never more than legend and local folklore, and these same articles often state that Bathsheba had four children, all of whom died before reaching the age of four. But we know that Bathsheba had a son, Herbert L. Sherman, who lived a long life as a farmer and had a family of his own. As for her three other children, an unofficial record of their existence on a public internet family tree lists their names as Julia, born in 1845, Edward, born in 1847, and George, born in 1853. It is possible that they died before the next census was conducted. So how did the parent family figure out that the spirit haunting them was that of Bathsheba Sherman? The family's connection to the spirit of Bathsheba Sherman came at the suggestion of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. The mother, Carolyn Perrin, told Ed and Lorraine about an incident that had happened a few years earlier. She said that she had been lying on the sofa and all of a sudden felt a piercing type of pain in her calf and then the muscle began to spasm. Upon examination, she noticed a puddle of blood at the point of impact. She checked for bees or anything else that could have caused the puncture on her leg but found nothing. In her daughter's book, Andrea Perrin describes the wound as a, quote, perfectly concentric circle, as if a large sewing needle had impaled her skin. Why does it have to be a sewing needle? It could be, mm. you know, anything sharp, but that's neither here nor there. We're just covering the case. When Carolyn told Ed and Lorraine Warren this story in conjunction with the tale of Bathsheba Sherman, who had been suspected of killing an infant with a knitting needle, Lorraine suggested that Bathsheba Sherman could have taken the needle with her to the afterlife and used it to stab Carolyn in the calf. From that point on, Lorraine Warren referred to the demonic presence in the parent house as Bathsheba. Where's the real farmhouse located? The real Conjuring farmhouse, often referred to by the Perrin family as the Old Arnold Estate, is still standing and is located in Harrisville, Rhode Island. So how many people died on the farmhouse property? Well, this is fairly well verified, and although, you know, we, I, I guess we can't really say that, oh, it was for sure Bathsheba Sherman or whatever, but this house did have a haunting history. Mm -hmm. Eight generations of one extended family lived and died in that house prior to our arrival, says Andrea Perrin, adding, some of them never left. According to WJAR-TV, the Black Book of Burville, the town's former public records book, reveals that over the course of its existence, the property had been host to two suicides by hanging, one suicide by poison, the rape and murder of 11-year-old Prudence Arnold by a farmhand, two drownings, and the passing of four men who froze to death, in addition to other tragic losses of life. In her book, Andrea Perrin addresses the members of the Arnold family who died on the farm where she states, quote, Most of the recorded deaths which occurred on the farm were in that family. Mrs. John Arnold, Harmony, Johnny, and Prudence. Even Bathsheba was an Arnold. Did the seller of the Arnold estate disclose to the Perrin family that the house was haunted? No, the state of Rhode Island does not legally require the seller of a home to inform the buyer of the existence of a supernatural presence, nor does it require them to disclose any paranormal events that have taken place on the property. However, in her book, Andrea Perrin states that on the day the family moved in, the man selling the house told her father, leave the lights on at night. Have any other homeowners who've lived in the Perrin family home had paranormal experiences? 
Daughter Andrea Perrin addressed this question in an interview with the TalapusaJournal.com. Quote, everyone who has lived in the house that we know of has experienced this. Some have left screaming and running for their lives. The man who moved in to begin the restoration on the house when we sold it left screaming without his car, without his tools, without his clothing. I'm assuming that he still had his clothes on. He just didn't yeah. get his suitcases. That's what I hope they mean. <laughs> yeah. He scared the clothes right off of him. Yeah. Jumped right out of him like an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. <laughs> he never went back to the house. And consequently, the people who owned it, the adjacent landowners, never moved in and it sat vacant for years. The current owner, Norma Sutcliffe, stated that she and her husband, Jerry, have had far less intense experiences in the farmhouse, although these are still haunting experiences. Mm -hmm. These experiences include the door banging in the front hall, sounds of people talking in another room, the sound of footsteps accompanied by a door opening in another room, and her husband's chair vibrating in the study. The only things that were ever visible to them were a blue light that Norma saw shoot across the bedroom and her husband once thought he saw fog in their home. So, I mean, that statement is kind of made as dismissive to the other hauntings, but it's still like if that happened in my house, I would be freaked out. I mean, it's better than having a, you know, a dead witch trying to attack you, but it's still crazy stuff. Yeah, I don't know if it's dismissive as much as letting people know that the conclusion that the movie portrayed where it kind of made it seem it didn't explicitly say it but it seems like everything's okay you know it's mm-hmm. really st- stuff still going on i yeah. mean it's you know we have that in quotes earlier but that's just more info for it how long had the conjuring movie been in the works the conjuring movie had been in the works for over 20 years ever since paranormal investigator ed warren played producer tony DeRosa grund a tape of his interview with carolyn perrin that he had recorded during his first visit to the farmhouse shock till you drop.com reported that producer DeRosa grund said it was either black or white either carolyn perrin had severe mental problems which she didn't or she was literally scared to death which she was so that pretty much wraps up uh, the first Conjuring. If you haven't seen it, like I said, it's it's a good movie. Did you enjoy the movie? Actually, I did. It's one that I've seen before. Um, I didn't remember it. I think I've only seen parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I texted you when I was sure. When I was like, I think like right about when it was ending, I was like, I'm positive I've seen this before. Because mm-hmm. the whole scene where they're chasing Carolyn through the basement and all that. Yeah. I remembered like I, I thought like, OK, if I see this, this is definitely the same movie. So I have a I have a friend who's just that's all she watches is horror movies. Mm-hmm. And she's either played this while I was around or it was on when I came in or something. But it's like it wasn't. it. I don't know. It wasn't something that interested me at the time. Mm-hmm. But having done a lot of the research that we've done on this show. And listening to other paranormal podcasts and reading all these different sources and learning more about who Ed and Lorraine were, um, it made it a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be for me. Because mm-hmm. in general, I'm not that much of a horror movie guy. I prefer, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to paranormal stuff, I'd prefer like a documentary type yeah. thing. And there are tons of documentaries mm-hmm. all over the internet about this case and about Ed and Lorraine. But yeah, in general, I 
I did enjoy this movie more than I thought I was going to. Um, without going into one of my movie hell rants, I just think it was really <laughs> well made. I think they did a good job with the effects. Um, and they made it, they did a good job of making it actually really suspenseful without only relying on jump scares. Yeah. I mean, a lot of movies kind of, that's what they resort to. And I, <laughs> I did text you that we called this movie, the clapping when yeah. it first came out. Cause I think the conjuring and the happening were around at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, this trailer was all over where, where she's looking down the stairs with that match. And then those hands come out and just clap next to her. Yeah. That's definitely an iconic scene from the movie. I thought that was yeah. well done. There's people out there that absolutely hate movies that are based on a true story, but mm-hmm. not really following the exact event timeline that happened and i think that with the conjuring movies you have to just kind of say okay some of this probably happened and if you're one of those people that you know just can't stand it when it's you know liberties are taken or it's exaggerated or something like that then you know maybe maybe kind of suspend your disbelief for these movies because i i think they're well done but Moving on, in The Conjuring 2, so the plot goes like this. In 1976, paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren investigate the Amityville murders at the Amityville house, and I'm sure everybody's familiar with that, to determine if a demonic presence was truly responsible for Ronald DeFeo Jr. killing his entire family in 1974 and the subsequent haunting incident involving the Lutz family. During a seance, Lorraine is drawn into a vision where she relives the murders and encounters a demonic nun figure. She then witnesses Ed being impaled, badly frightening her. In 1977, the Hodgson family begins to experience strange occurrences in their home in the London borough of Enfield after Janet, the second oldest of the four children, plays with an Ouija board. Janet starts to sleepwalk and converses in her dreams with an entity in the form of an angry elderly man who sits in the family's armchair, insisting the house is his. And this is a ghostly entity. It's not like some guy off the street or something. Eventually, the Hodgson siblings and their mother Peggy witness paranormal events, terrifying them into seeking refuge with their neighbors. When the media attempts to interview the family, Janet is possessed by the elderly man, Bill Wilkins, who previously lived and died in the house. As Janet shows more signs of demonic possession, the story eventually reaches the Warrens, and their assistance is requested to prove whether or not Janet's possession is a hoax. Lorraine, fearful that her vision of Ed's death may become reality, warns him not to get involved. She has another vision of the demonic nun in Ed's study. The demon says its name, which Lorraine scratches into her Bible in a trance. While staying at the Hodgson's residence, Ed and Lorraine consult other paranormal investigators, including Maurice Gross and Anita Gregory, on the legitimacy of the case. Anita presents video evidence of Janet wrecking the kitchen on purpose, thereby discrediting the haunting. Based on this, Ed and Lorraine decide to leave, believing the family is lying for fame. However, they discover that the spirit of Wilkins is only a pawn being manipulated by the true demon, the powerful nun who is seeking to break Janet's will. 
Lorraine realizes that her abilities have been blocked by the nun, preventing her from grasping the truth of Janet's possession. Ed and Lorraine quickly return to the Hodgins residence to find Janet possessed and the rest of the Hodgins locked outside the house. Ed ventures inside alone and finds Janet at the window, ready to commit suicide. He manages to grab Janet in time, but is close to falling. Lightning strikes the tree in the yard, turning it into the stump that impaled Ed in Lorraine's vision. Lorraine finds her Bible in which she wrote the demon's name, Valak. She addresses the demon by its name, successfully condemning it back to hell. Janet is freed of its possession, and Lorraine pulls her and Ed to safety. After returning home, Ed adds an item to he and Lorraine's collection, a haunted, crooked man, Zotrope toy owned by Peggy's youngest child, placing it beside April's music box and the Annabelle doll. When did the Enfield haunting begin? The Conjuring 2 true story reveals that according to the mother, Peggy Hodgson, the haunting of her Enfield home began on the evening of August 30th, 1977. According to Daily Mail Online, it was on that night that her daughter Janet told her that her brother's beds were wobbling. The next evening, Mrs. Hodgson heard a loud noise from upstairs. She entered her children's bedroom and saw a chest of drawers moving. She tried to stop the heavy oak chest as it moved toward the door, concluding that an invisible force was trying to trap them in the room. It started in a back bedroom. The chest of drawers moved and you could hear shuffling, recalled the real Janet Hodgson many years later. Thinking that it was Janet and her siblings making the noise, she said that her mother told them to go to sleep. We told her what was going on and she came to see it for herself. She saw the chest of drawers moving when she tried to push it back. She couldn't. Did they hear a strange knocking coming from the walls? Yes, the knocking would fade in and out as it ran down the wall, supposedly frightening the family so much that they all slept in the same room with the light on. Vic Nottingham, a neighbor, claims that when he went to the home to investigate at the family's request, he heard a knocking on the wall and on the ceiling, leaving him somewhat frightened. But did dozens of crosses turn upside down? No, in fact checking The Conjuring 2 by comparing it to the real Enfield Poltergeist case, we found no evidence that crosses turned upside down on the walls of the Hodgson home. In fact, the upside down cross has not traditionally been a symbol of evil. It is the cross of St. Peter who was crucified upside down because he felt that he was not worthy of being crucified in the same way as Jesus. Did the mother Peggy go to the neighbor's house for help? Oh yeah. Single mother <laughs> Peggy Hodgson took the family next door and pleaded for help. According to Daily Mail Online, the neighbors, Vic and Peggy Nottingham, offered to go into the home to investigate. Vic said, I went in there and I couldn't make out these noises. There was a knocking on the wall in the bedroom on the ceiling. I was beginning to get a bit frightened. Did Janet Hodgson really levitate? In The Conjuring 2 movie, Peggy's daughter Janet rises high in the air and finds herself pinned against the ceiling. This is an exaggeration of what allegedly happened in real life during the Enfield haunting. Photographs of the real Janet Hodgson levitating only show her a short distance above her bed. This, coupled with the way her body is positioned in the air, has led many people to believe she simply jumped from her bed. The questionable photos were taken by Daily Mirror photographer Graham Morris after the family contacted the press. The levitation was scary, recalled Janet, because you didn't know where you were going to land. Supporting the family's claims were two witnesses, a baker and a lady, who were passing by outside and claimed to have seen Janet hovering above her bed as they looked through an upstairs window. The lady saw me spinning around and banging against the window, recalls Janet. I thought I might actually break the window and go through it. 
Yeah, and if you look these uh, photographs up online, I'm not saying that she for sure wasn't levitating, but if you showed me those pictures, I would never come to that conclusion ever. It looks like she jumps off her bed and they take a picture while she's in the air. Pretty simple. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I guess it kind of depends on the photographic equipment they actually used. Mm-hmm. Because film cameras without a flash are really hard to get any kind of a really still photo like that with. Really? Unless you're in, yeah, unless you're in bright light. I mean, that's like, I think we kind of take that for granted with digital cameras that the ISO or the sensitivity to light is adjustable. But, you know, back in the day you bought 200 speed film or whatever. Mm -hmm. That refers to the sensitivity. The higher the number, basically, the faster it takes in light. Mm -hmm. So... You'd use a really fast film if you were going to do like take pictures of people playing sports or something like that. Right. Where you'd want to freeze action. So I, I get what you mean about the positioning, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I'd probably need more information to have like a real opinion on it. You know, but if you it, it's only occurring the photos, to me in the moment. You wouldn't be like, oh, that girl's levitating. Probably not. Probably yeah. not. Because I... <laughs> Like I'm thinking about a hike I went on a couple of years ago with uh, my fiance and some of her family. And we were, we were walking down like a, um, I don't know exactly what the right term for it is. It's almost like a waterfall kind of thing. Like it leads to that, like a small one, Sure. but this is a pathway that's just rock with water running over it. So it's this wide, shallow thing of water and stone and it's slick. Yeah. And I slipped we, they had just been talking about like, all right, don't anybody fall because we're going to have to get, you know, airlifted out of here or whatever. <laughs> and like immediately, immediately on cue, I slipped because I was wearing like, you know, shoes that had no tread because, you know, they're like, oh, we're going on a hike. And I was like, OK, well, Some none of these people shoes. are in fantastic shape, so I'm sure we're not going anywhere too rough. But yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, my. My fiance's sister said that she like turned from my perspective. What I saw was the sky, which was above me, just all of a sudden come down in front of my face. And I thought like, oh, fuck, huh. something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just so fast. Like I just slipped so quickly. And uh, yeah, my soon to be sister-in-law said she looked over and saw me. She said it looked like I was just laying in the air. She said it looked like I was on a gurney, but there was no gurney. She just wow. like her like <laughs> and looked over and saw me like that. So it is possible to jump or fall and just kind of be seen really quickly by somebody glancing over and mm-hmm. have it look like you're levitating. So sure. it's really hard to say, you know, without being there because so many of these cases have been embellished or exaggerated over the years. Um, and stories change even from some of the witnesses involved, not, not specifically talking about this, but like the Amityville stuff, some of those stories have kind of changed or there's been more doubt put on them over the years. Did demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren really investigate the Enfield poltergeist case? Yes, paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren briefly investigated the Enfield poltergeist in the summer of 1978 and were just two of the many investigators to visit the Hodgson's North London home on Green Street. Most articles about the Enfield poltergeist case don't even mention the Warrens, leading one to conclude that their role in the case was significantly dramatized for The Conjuring 2. In fact, in an interview with Darkness Radio, Guy Leone Playfair, one of the original paranormal investigators on the Enfield Poltergeist case, 
came forward prior to the movie's release and said that the Warrens had showed up, quote, uninvited and only stayed for a day. Ed Warren touched on the case and its skeptics in Gerald Brittle's book, The Demonologist, stating that, quote, inhuman spirit phenomena were in progress. Now, you couldn't record the dangerous, threatening atmosphere inside that little house, but you could film the levitation, teleportation, and dematerialization of people and objects that were happening there, not to mention the many hundreds of hours of tape recordings made of these spirit voices speaking out loud in the rooms. As the case became widely viewed as a hoax, some saw it as proof that the Warrens themselves were frauds. And there's a lot of that out there. Uh, one thing that I noticed from being in the quote ghost hunting community for a couple years is there is a lot of hate. It's just like the Bigfoot community. It's just like probably most, you know, paranormal subjects. There's fierce territorialism. I investigated that house. No other team should ever go in there. That's my house. I got that photo. That's mine. And it's like, well, do you want to like get to the bottom of it? Or do you just want to have your, you know, picture show up in the news or something? Yeah. Or do you want to even have your experiences validated by another team? Yeah. Good point. Was the 11-year-old Janet Hodgson really possessed by a dead man named Bill Wilkins? This part of the movie was to some degree inspired by audio tapes of the real Janet Hodgson. In the recording, she can be heard conveying a message via an eerie voice, which is supposedly that of Bill Wilkins, a man who had died in the living room of the house several years earlier. Just before I died, I went blind, said the voice, and then I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died in the chair in the corner downstairs. An interview with Janet Hodgson at the time suggests that the idea of talking in a possessed voice may have been encouraged and planted in Janet's mind by paranormal investigator Maurice Gross. When asked when the voices started, Janet said that one night Maurice Gross told them, all we need now is the voices to talk. Almost immediately following this suggestion, they did. The voices had mainly growled, barked, and made similar noises prior to this. I felt used by a force that nobody understands, the real Janet Hodgson told UK's Channel 4 years later. According to Daily Mail Online, the real Janet Hodgson said, I really don't like to think about it too much. I'm not sure the poltergeist was truly evil. It was almost as if it wanted to be part of our family. It didn't want to hurt us. It had died there and wanted to be at rest. The only way it could communicate was through me and my sister. I want to hear, this is going out to you, Crypt Keepers. I want you to hit the voice message button where you can uh, use Anchor to leave a voice message. And I want to hear you say, Cryptique is my favorite podcast in your possessed voice. What would your voice sound like if you were possessed? What about you, Ryan? What would your possessed voice sound like? Oh, God, I don't know. Cryptique is my favorite podcast. Now, that kind of sounded like a pirate, didn't it? I was about to say, you sound like Floki <laughs> from Vikings. That's kind of his voice. He's like like six foot five, and he's like, Oh, the gods have told me to do this. <laughs> he, he almost sounds like a giant leprechaun. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that would be mine. I basically sound like the Lucky Charms guy. But like, Cryptique is my favorite podcast. There you go. There we go. Ryan from Ireland says, Cryptique is his favorite podcast. Friend of the show. <laughs> 
So you asked the question, did the paranormal activity begin after they played with an Ouija board? Yes, according to the real Janet Hodgson, who says that she and her sister Margaret played with an Ouija board just prior to the start of the supernatural activity. Ryan, did the furniture really move? Perhaps the most credible claim of furniture moving in the Hodgson home involved a policewoman, WPC Carolyn Heaps, who signed an affidavit that she had witnessed an armchair levitate half an inch and move close to four feet across the floor. In all, there were more than 30 witnesses to similar strange incidents in the home. In addition to moving furniture, they had supposedly witnessed objects flying around, cold breezes, physical assaults, pools of water appearing on the floor, graffiti, and perhaps most incredibly, matches spontaneously igniting. That's pretty scary if something catches on fire. The other stuff, is, you know, yeah. you can you can fight, but I mean, if a fire breaks out, that's that's really scary. I mean, you know, they were there to see it and put it out. But what happens if, you know, you've got your gas oven downstairs, I'm sure, in 1970s England, and you've got your... Uh, pack of matches sitting on top of it and they catch on fire you're asleep yeah scary stuff now what were you gonna I'm ask sure. me i'm sure it's a bit frightening yeah since they're all so english in these interviews and these answers to their <laughs> questions you know everything oh it's a, it's a bit frightening mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just i was like okay yeah this is just super english it's quite quite frightening various various sounds and growlings <laughs> <laughs> The famous uh, British Reserve. Yeah, definitely. So, did the police do anything to help? Of course not. Despite a police officer witnessing a chair move, the police left after determining that it wasn't a police matter since no one was breaking the law. That's and, true. I can get behind that. Yeah, but come on. To protect Nothing and serve. Nothing about a ghost carrying a chair around. To protect and serve, man. Is that an English thing, though? It's got to be just the slogan over here. I don't know. I don't know about those bobbies over there. What caused the Enfield poltergeist events to quiet down? The real Janet Hodgson believes that it was a priest's 1978 visit to the family's Enfield home in North London that caused the haunting to calm down, not the Warrens, though the occurrences did not end completely. Peggy still heard noises in the house from time to time, and Janet's younger brother, Billy, who lived there until his mother passed, remarked that you always felt like you were being watched. We've all had that feeling of being watched, and that sucks. And I that can be, I think, psychosomatic. Like, if you think mm -hmm. you're in a haunted place, then, yeah, you're going to feel like something's watching you. But that's a horrible feeling. Yeah, I had that feeling. I told you before that I've stayed at the Lent Mansion. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing I experienced there was this, like, I didn't even really feel watched. It was it was a it was what you're saying. It it kind of bordered on it, but it was very much my own mind mm -hmm. that I was aware of all the stories, and I never I'd been there a ton of times, but I never stayed overnight. And it was just like I was aware of it. I was just yeah, like ready yeah. for it, and I was vigilant for it, and so I kind of felt as though something was about to happen since I expected it. Yeah, and that causes anxiety, and yeah. that sucks. And when you're, you know, people joke about anxiety or, you know, anxiety attacks and stuff like that, but, you know, my family has experienced it, and they say it is awful. It is debilitating, and something like this could easily trigger an anxiety attack if you feel like people are watching you. Mm-hmm. So you asked, is it possible that the whole thing was a hoax? 
Yes, two experts from the Society for Psychical Research, SPR, caught the children bending spoons themselves. They also found it strange why no one was allowed in the room when Janet was talking in her possessed voice, which was supposedly that of Bill Wilkins. Janet herself admitted that some of the Enfield haunting events were fabricated. In 1980, she told ITV News, quote, Oh yeah, once or twice we faked things just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair would catch us. They always did. End quote. In an article that was published in the year before the release of The Conjuring 2, Janet said that roughly 2% of the paranormal activity in their Green Street home had been faked. I kind of like the fact that they came out and said, yeah, we, we did this to try and fool them. Mm-hmm. I think the tone of this is, you know, wanting to dim- dismiss everything, but the fact that they admitted it and said that they were caught, I think lends a little bit of credibility, but that's just me. Yeah. I can see that. During a Margaret and Janet Hodgson interview that aired as part of a TV special in 1980, Janet is asked how it feels to be haunted by a poltergeist. Quote, it's not haunted, end quote, Janet replies smiling. Her sister smiles in astonishment as if Janet just gave up a secret and whispers, quote, shut up, through muted giggles. Janet later said she didn't feel the poltergeist was evil, meaning that the house wasn't necessarily haunted. Hmm. What happened to the Hodgson family after the paranormal activity subsided? When the Enfield poltergeist event subsided and the press attention faded, the family faced various challenges. Janet married young after leaving home at age 16. Her young brother Johnny died of cancer at age 14. The family's claims of something paranormal being present in the house lasted all the way up until Peggy's death, at which time Janet's brother Billy moved out of the home. Janet lost a child herself, a son who died in his sleep at 18. She says that she didn't want to resurrect the painful memories of the Enfield poltergeist events with her mother while she was alive, but that she is now ready to tell her story. How does the real Janet Hodgson feel about the movie? The real Janet was less than thrilled when she heard about the movie. She says, quote, I wasn't very happy to hear about the film. I didn't know anything about it. My dad had just died, and it really upset me to think of all this being raked over again, end quote. Probably in all movies, but I think definitely in horror or paranormal-based movies, there's a lot of exploitation that goes on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she's trying to say in her own way that they felt like they had been exploited by the Warrens in, the, in Hollywood. Yeah, I can see that. Do any of the families who've lived in the home since believe that it's haunted? After the real Peggy Hodgson passed away, Claire, Bennett, and her four sons moved into the Enfield home. Like Janet's younger brother, Billy, Claire claimed that she always felt as if someone was watching her. During the night, her children would get woken up by voices coming from downstairs. She then learned about the Enfield poltergeist that had supposedly haunted the home. The final straw came when her son, Shaka, 15, woke up and saw a man enter his room. They moved out the next day after being in the house for only two months. Yeah, the only thing I have for that is the name Shaka. It's like yes, I I think I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. This is near. This is North London, so it's a very multicultural place. I'm sure there's lots of names I haven't heard of. Hey, my name is Ryan, 
And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Hell is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Have you ever wondered what it's like to kill a man? Hey, what's up, Crypt Keepers? Are you enjoying the show? If you haven't already, I suggest taking my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil, for a test drive. Exploring Evil focuses on lesser-known serial killers, occult murders, and murders with a paranormal twist, so it should be right up your alley. The Magdalena Solis episode features a prostitute who convinced a Mexican village she was a goddess. She presented with psychosis, religious delusions, delusions of grandeur, sexual perversions, sadism, incest, fetishism, vampirism, and pedophilia. You don't want to miss that one. In the Indian Blood Farm, we cover a case where a man had an outbuilding he was keeping the downtrodden. He kept them weak by continuously draining blood to sell to the local hospitals who were running on short supply. But one man escaped and told the world what was really happening. How about the Body Snatchers episode where corpses had their body parts replaced with PVC pipes so they could be sold for a profit? In the Antron Singleton case, we cover a rapper who killed and ate pieces of a woman. There's always something new and interesting to listen to and a lot of twists and turns. So check out Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique. The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. In 1981, demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren document the exorcism of eight-year-old David Glatzel, attended by his family, his sister Debbie, her boyfriend Arnie Johnson, and Father Gordon in Brookfield, Connecticut. During the exorcism, Arnie invites the demon to enter his body instead of David's. Ed witnesses the demon transport itself from David's body to Arnie's while he suffers from a heart attack and is taken to a hospital in an unconscious state. That is Ed that is taken to the hospital, just to be clear. It it was not Arnie. The following month, Ed wakes up at the hospital and reveals to Lorraine that he witnessed the demon enter Arnie's body. She sends the police to the Glatzel household, warning them that a tragedy will occur there. Arnie and Debbie return to their apartment located above a kennel where Debbie works. After feeling unwell, Arnie murders his landlord, Bruno Sauls, by stabbing him 22 times due to his demonic possession. Bruno Sauls is the character who is based on Alan Bono, the real-life murder victim. With the support of the Warrens, his case becomes the first American murder trial to claim demonic possession as a defense, resulting in the beginning of an investigation into David's original possession. 
The Warrens later discover a satanic curse passed on through a witch's totem and meet with Kastner, a former priest who previously dealt with the disciples of the Ram cult. He tells them that an occultist had intentionally left the totem, resulting in the creation of a curse on the Glatzels, causing the possession of David. The Warrens travel to Danvers, Massachusetts to investigate the death of Katie Lincoln, who was also stabbed 22 times. Detectives had found a totem at the home of Katie's friend Jessica, who is missing. Lorraine initiates a vision to recreate the murder and discovers that Jessica had stabbed Katie while possessed before jumping to her death off of a cliff, which allows detectives to recover her body. The Warrens travel to the funeral home where her body rests and Lorraine touches the corpse's hand to find the location of the occultist. Lorraine, in a vision, witnesses the occultist attempting to have Arnie kill himself, but stops her, just in time. Lorraine is threatened by the occultist, and she tells Ed that the connection works both ways. The Warrens return to their house in Connecticut to investigate further. Drew reveals that he has found a book of Stragarian witchcraft, which states that for the curse to be lifted, the altar used by the occultist must be destroyed. Ed is affected by the curse, a totem being discovered in a vase of flowers delivered to the house, but is stopped by Drew when attacking Lorraine. So to be clear, Drew is their assistant. Right. He's depicted as, uh, I, he's the one driving the VW microbus in the first movie. Yeah, he's so kind of like the technology the guy for the team. Yeah, right. He's the one that's setting up their audio equipment who you see in the movies, like listening to the stuff and, you know monitoring all that he he's the guy in the van if you want to put it in context of like modern ghost hunting shows yeah <laughs> i mean and he was in a van in the movie so yeah. i guess that works when they realize katie attended nearby fairfield university they begin to assume the occultist is operating in the area lorraine returns to kastner for help and he reveals that he had secretly raised a daughter in violation of the requirement of clerical celibacy in the catholic church as he researched the occult his daughter grew fascinated with it, later becoming the occultist. Kastner tells Lorraine that his daughter's altar must be in the tunnels underneath the house, leading her into them before his daughter finds and kills him. Ed soon arrives and finds his way into the tunnels through a locked drain hole with a sledgehammer. He is briefly bewitched by the priest's daughter and attempts to kill Lorraine, but she forces him to recall the time they first met reminding him of their love. Ed regains his senses and destroys the altar, saving himself, Lorraine, and Arnie. The occultist arrives at her broken altar, only to be killed by the demon she had summoned after failing to complete the curse. Ed places the cup from the altar in the artifact room, along with the Valak painting in the Annabelle doll. Arnie is convicted of manslaughter, but ends up serving a sentence of only five years, marrying Debbie while in prison. Ed shows Lorraine a gazebo like the one in which they first kissed at the end of the movie. And while I like the Conjuring movies, the relationship between Ed and Lorraine is played up to a degree of corniness, where our love has freed another soul and, you know, things like that. That's a little rough. That's like a little dose of Hallmark in there. <clears throat> Maybe somebody worked on one of those and they're like, "Yeah, let's just put a little Hallmark stank on this one. <laughs> exactly. A little bit of stank is a good way to describe it. <laughs> 
So as far as the historical accuracy goes, how did 11-year-old David Glatzel allegedly become possessed? According to the Conjuring 3 true story, in early July of 1980, 11-year-old David Glatzel had been helping his older sister Debbie Glatzel and her boyfriend Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, quite a name, mm -hmm. clean up a Connecticut rental property they were preparing to move into. While at the property, David claimed to have encountered a burnt and black-looking old man who pushed him into a waterbed and said he would bring harm to them if they moved into the home. The movie's version of the encounter finds David being grabbed by a hand that bursts through from inside the waterbed, which is a fictionalized version of the actual account. After returning to his parents' home, David claimed that the old man continued to appear before him and talk to him. He described the man as having a white beard and wearing jeans and a flannel shirt. He said that the man's skin looked charred black as if he'd been burned in a fire. David also saw the man in night terrors and had obtained unexplained bruises and scratches on his body. He would wake up screaming and describe the man as having large, sunken black eyes and animal-like features, including horns, hooves, pointy ears, and jagged teeth. Aside from its dark eyes, the Conjuring 3 demon doesn't closely resemble what David described. When did the true story behind the Conjuring 3 take place? The real-life events, including the David Glatzel possession and his subsequent exorcisms, along with Arnie Johnson's possession and murder trial, unfolded in 1980 and 1981. Were there any other signs of paranormal activity at the Glatzel home? Yes, the family claimed to hear unexplained noises coming from the attic. Demonologist Ed Warren said that banging and growling noises were heard coming from the basement and he saw a rocking chair move on its own. During an interview with paranormal researcher Tony Spira, who is also Ed's son-in-law, Ed also claimed that David's plastic toy dinosaur started to walk on its own toward the family. A deep voice could then be heard emanating from it, telling them, Beware, you're all going to die. Did a priest really come and bless the house? In the movie, Father Gordon arrives to bless the home. According to the family, they did bring in a Roman Catholic priest to bless the house. Several priests were involved in the exorcism of the boy, David Glatzel, with the most prominent being Reverend Francis E. Vergilac. Did the Glatzel family really contact demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren? Yes, the family did indeed contact husband and wife paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, portrayed by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Ed was a demonologist and Lorraine claimed to be a clairvoyant. Like most of the previous movies in the Conjuring series, including the Enfield Poltergeist and Annabelle, the story was inspired by the Warrens' case files. So did Lorraine Warren observe the demon? In a Newsweek article, this is what Lorraine Warren claimed, and it was the Warrens who introduced the theory of demonic possession. Lorraine said that while her husband Ed was interviewing the possessed boy David Glatzel, she saw a black mist materialize next to him, indicating that the demon was present. David's mother, Judy, had previously wondered if a ghost, not a demon, was the culprit, but the Warrens rejected this idea. Lorraine also claimed that she saw David being choked by invisible hands and remarked that, quote, he had the feeling he was being hit, end quote. Lorraine told People magazine that red marks could be seen on his neck afterward. Lorraine said that she witnessed David growl and hiss. She heard him speak in unrecognizable voices and said that he would recite passages from the Bible and John Milton's Paradise Lost. The Daily Mirror reported that David's sister, Debbie Glatzel, said that he would also spit, bite, kick, 
and swear, quote, terrible words. She described powerful forces flopping him, quote, head to toe like a rag doll. Debbie told the Chippewa Herald Telegram that she saw the demon once during one of her brother's nighttime episodes. He manifested, just a face on the wall, high cheekbones, a narrow chin, a thin nose, big black eyes, hidden in dark holes. He showed his teeth. She said it disappeared as quickly as it had appeared. Right away, I knew there was something to this. I felt like a good fisherman when he knows there's something on the line, Ed Warren said in a 1981 Washington Post article. Ed claimed that the boy had 43 demons inside of him and that he had spoken their names. During an interview with paranormal researcher Tony Spera, Ed also said the boy would exhibit extreme strength and that he once witnessed him levitate. Did Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Johnson decide against renting the home? Yes, they decided against renting the house and instead began renting a small green and brown house next to Debbie's place of employment, the Brookfield Boarding Kennels in Brookfield, Connecticut. Debbie had been working as a dog groomer for the landlord of the house, a short and stocky 40-year-old man by the name of Alan Bono, who was the kennel manager. Bono lived in an apartment above the kennels that his sister owned. He was a world traveler who had recently been managing a plantation in Australia for about 17 months until his sister, who was living in Florida, asked him to go to Connecticut to manage the kennels. Were exorcisms performed on David Glatzel? Yes, according to the Warrens. They oversaw three, quote, lesser exorcisms that David was subjected to. Lorraine Warren claimed that David levitated, ceased breathing, and even foreshadowed the murder that was going to happen. The local diocese said that the Catholic Church never sanctioned a formal exorcism, stating that the Glatzel family had not taken part in the psychological tests that the church required. David Glatzel's mom, Judy, responded by telling the Washington Post that she paid $75 an hour for a session with a local psychiatrist, but it was up to church officials to set up and pay for further psychological testing. Did Arnie Cheyenne Johnson challenge the demon to possess him instead of the boy? This is allegedly correct. One of the demons supposedly went from the body of the boy, David Glatzel, into the body of his older sister's boyfriend, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, after Arnie egged the demon on to leave David's body and possess him instead. According to demonologist Ed Warren, Arnie yelled, Take me on, leave my little buddy alone. After a few days, David's condition improved, but Arnie began to show signs that the demon had taken hold of him. The haunting TV series episode, Where Demons Dwell, states that the demon took control of his car and forced it into a tree, leaving him startled but uninjured. The demon was also blamed for Arnie's fall from a tree while working as a tree trimmer. Debbie claimed that he would hallucinate and growl. Arnie said that his final lucid encounter with the demon was at the rental home when he was examining an old well which supposedly housed the demon. According to Arnie, he truly had become possessed when he made eye contact with the demon at the well. What were the circumstances surrounding Arnie Johnson's murder of his landlord, Alan Bono? On February 16, 1981, 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson called in sick to the Wright's Tree Service where he was employed. He met his girlfriend, Debbie, at the Brookfield Kennels. They were joined by Debbie's 9-year-old cousin, Mary, and Arnie's sisters, Wanda, who was 15, and Janice, who was 13. The three girls had come to visit Debbie at work and see the dogs. Debbie's boss, Alan Bono, who was also Debbie and Arnie's landlord, invited them out to lunch at a local pizza parlor. 
By this point, Arnie had supposedly been exhibiting strange behavior that was similar to what Debbie's younger brother David had experienced when he was allegedly possessed. At least, that's what Arnie's attorney tried to argue at his murder trial. While they were at the restaurant, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and Alan Bono began to drink heavily. By the time they returned to the kennel, Alan was intoxicated. He grabbed a hold of Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary and refused to let go. Arnie ordered Alan to release Mary. When he finally did, the two men continued to argue in the driveway of the kennel. Debbie attempted to stand between them and Arnie's sister Wanda tried to pull her brother away. According to what was stated at the trial, Arnie then began to growl like an animal and pulled out a 5-inch tree surgeon's knife, stabbing Alan Bono repeatedly. Alan suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mainly to his chest. He died at the hospital several hours later. Arnie was taken into custody two miles from the scene by police. He claimed that he couldn't remember anything that had happened. The stabbing is believed to be the first murder in Brookfield, Connecticut's 193-year history. The following day, paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren told the police that it was her belief that Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was possessed when he killed Alan Bono. During the three months that Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Johnson lived next to the kennel that Alan Bono lived above, the three became very friendly. The Brookfield police believed that Debbie and Alan's relationship may have been more than just employer-employee, but Debbie said that Alan was an alcoholic and that, quote, he could make friends with anybody, end quote. She denied there was anything between them. The police said that Arnie and Alan were arguing over Debbie. The Devil Made Me Do It leaves out the idea of Alan, who again was named Bruno Sal in the movie, being a jealous lover, but does show him grabbing Debbie. Did Arnie Johnson's trial mark the first time that demonic possession had been used as a defense in U.S. courts? Yes, eight months after the homicide, Arnie Johnson's lawyer Martin Manella attempted to enter a plea of not guilty due to demonic possession. Manella argued that Arnie Johnson killed Alan Bono while under the devil's spell, stating that his client was possessed by a demon and it was a demon who actually manipulated his body. It was the first known court case in the United States where the defense had sought to prove innocence based on a claim of demonic possession. As word of the unusual defense spread to the media, the trial became known as the Devil Made Me Do It case. It made headlines around the world, and paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were famous for their involvement in the Amityville horror case, were thrust back into the spotlight. Manella told the New York Times, The courts have dealt with the existence of God. Now they're going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. Uh, the lawyer, Martin Manella, is depicted as a female in the movie and renamed Merrill. This is a tough one because, I mean, you know, it does, you know, you still swear on a Bible when you're testifying in court, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I can see both sides. It's like, yeah, we can't really let this into our court because everybody that kills somebody could be claiming that they're possessed when they do it because it's yeah. such a horrible act to begin with. And such a hard thing to prove that you're you know, that you're not. Mm -hmm. it, it switches the burden to proving that you're... Because the whole thing is innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. So if you're claiming this is the reason you're innocent, they have to prove that it's not. They have to prove that you're not possessed. Yeah. They have to prove that you're not, you know, mentally unsound or, or whatever else they're going after. So, yeah, it, it 
100% makes sense that they would want to avoid having this even be something, you know, to be in the toolbox of a defense lawyer. Right. And you would think, given the previous cases, being that this is the third one that we're discussing happening in the 80s, which is much later than Conjuring 1 and Conjuring 2, the Arnold property and the Enfield poltergeist, if they were using cameras and recording equipment back then, then you would have to ask the question, why weren't they using them when this was going on? Hmm. Because you could at least try to present evidence if there were demonic voices or if there were uh, levitations, like they said. Now, this evidence may be suppressed if you know it's found to be not crucial to the case or if it's found to be misleading or something like that. But you would think that as a lawyer, you would still try and present that and say, well, you know, I can't say he's possessed, but maybe he's crazy. Look at this, Mm -hmm. you know? So did the judge in Arnie Cheyenne Johnson's murder trial forbid the demon defense? Yes. Judge Robert Callahan promptly rejected the idea of a defense based on demonic possession. Callahan stated that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to a lack of evidence. He stated that it would be irrelative and unscientific to allow testimony related to such a defense. So that would suppress having the Warrens testify, most likely, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate what evidence may have been collected on audio or video, but... Arnie Cheyenne Johnson's lawyer had to give up the argument of demonic possession and instead decided to argue that Johnson acted in self-defense. So if he would have gone with the crazy plea, then maybe he could have, uh, you know, presented some evidence had it ever existed. And we have no evidence that it ever existed. But I think we're calling into question why it didn't exist if this happened based on Mm -hmm. the fact that they always brought stuff to document their investigations. Yeah, they even had a guy for that. Mm -hmm. Did the jury find Arnie Cheyenne Johnson guilty? They did. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over the course of three days. On November 24, 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Did Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Cheyenne Johnson marry while he was in prison? Dum, dum, da-dum. Yes, (laughs) Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Johnson married while he was in prison. He received his high school diploma and took several college courses while behind bars. He was reportedly a model prisoner and was released on good behavior after serving less than five years. The couple now has two children. How do you feel about five years for stabbing someone to death without being proven that he was possessed or anything? I I don't know. We would have um, to dig into this case a little bit. Yeah, further. yeah. It, it, I mean, if it was an argument and I don't know, I don't know. I mean, that's always a thing that's like brought up in movies and stuff like that, that, you know, you've managed to put the bad guys away. And if they just behave themselves behind bars, they don't really serve a lot of time. It's true. Um, so I can tell you how I would feel if I was uh, Alan Bono's sister who had asked him to go there to you know, watch her kennels for her, I, I would feel yeah. terrible. Yeah. And I would feel betrayed by the courts that he got out in five years. Yeah. I mean, being stabbed is, 
I don't know. I don't know. Like, stabbing somebody... I guess maybe you could argue that it's like hitting someone. Just like it can be a spur-of-the-moment thing that you do. But to stab somebody 22 times, mm -hmm. or whatever he did, you know? Yeah. It was 22, right? Because yeah. that was the thing. It was like a pattern of it being that many times. Yeah. It's... That's pretty rough. Right. That's that that would be pretty hard to convince in absence of evidence that there was something going on with him psychologically or spiritually that that was like a manslaughter thing. Because manslaughter basically my understanding just off the top of my head, manslaughter is basically murder but without premeditation. Like it's something mm. that happens in the moment. You didn't go in with the intention of doing that. Right, right. Like a, a car accident, like a drunk car accident or something like that. Right. So I usually think of it as, you know, not planned and also something that you kind of do in the spur of the moment and then regret. Not like you stab him and then you stab him 20 more times, 21 more times for good measure. Mm -hmm. And I, I usually associate it with being unintentional, even maybe neglectful. Negligent. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like a negligent homicide, but you make 22 decisions when you stab somebody 22 times. Yeah. When you pull a trigger, not only are you separated from the actual act, and, and I, I don't mean in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of God or anything like that. I mean, physically, you're separated. You're standing 10 feet away or whatever it is, and you pull a trigger on an that item that, yeah, and it like initiates a process that does it right right it's yeah. like it's out of your hands then like all you do is initiate that process and it's it happens yeah it, and it's it, it's a lot less personal right yeah 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 that's a good way of putting it like i've heard comedians talk about it before like that sounds really weird but comedians talk about a lot of stuff so mm -hmm. <laughs> but i've heard that thing like i would much rather get shot than stabbed mm-hmm I forget who it was, but he was saying like, you know, when you're stabbed, you're there the whole time. And he does this like funny thing of himself, like, oh, just, you know, imagining being there for it because it's slow. Yeah. Like it's slow, but it's slow for the other person, too. It's not, you know, basically push a button and it's done. Mm -hmm. But if he really was influenced by something, if that's really true, um, and then it was essentially just him stuck in jail, then... I don't know. Maybe they saw that there was, you know, this isn't like a dangerous person. Well, but who knows? Most of the time when someone is paroled, I have never seen a case where somebody was paroled without admitting full guilt for the crime they were convicted of. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I think that at some point for him to get this parole, he probably at least had to accept responsibility. I think if he went to the, you know, before the parole board and said, yep, it was the demon could come back at any time. You never know. Mm -hmm. They're going to yeah. be like, okay, well, obviously you're not rehabilitated and obviously it's not safe to have you in society. So we're going to have you, you know, serve, c come back in two and a half years and we'll see, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that the devil made me do it case was a hoax? David's brother, Carl Glatzel, spoke out against Gerald Brittle's book that Lorraine Warren was involved in, The Devil in Connecticut, when it was republished in 2006. Carl called the book a complete lie, saying that the Warrens concocted a phony story about demons in an attempt to get rich and famous at our expense. 
According to Carl, the Warrens told the family that the demonic possession story would turn them into millionaires. In reality, the Glatzel family was paid just $2,000. Carl said that his younger brother David had been suffering from a mental illness at the time from which he has since recovered. He said that the entire family was manipulated and exploited by Ed and Lorraine Warren. In 2007, David and Carl went as far as to file a lawsuit against Gerald Brittle and the Warrens for unspecified financial damages. Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, who married while Arnie was in prison, appeared to be the only two members of the Glatzel family who support the Warrens' account of possession. In addition to his brother Carl, David Glatzel's father also denied that his son was ever possessed. At the time, however, David's mother mostly backed up the Warrens' story. So that's all we've got for you on The Conjuring Movies. We hope you enjoyed learning about the true events that inspired them. So what do we need our listeners to do, Jay? Subscribe, follow, tell friends, leave a review, please. That's right. And we said this is the season finale, but we'll be back in a couple weeks with new episodes, and we're going to try to sprinkle in some interviews for season two. Is there anything you're dying to get to about this one? No. Not really. It's got me thinking that maybe we should start looking into stories by some of these older, you know, um, investigators mm-hmm. like Bud Hopkins, um, George Knapp, mm-hmm. people like that. You know, people like the Warrants who were just really pr- prolific back in their day and kind of formative to the paranormal field as it exists now. I think that would be great. Let us know at crypticpodcast at gmail.com if that's something you guys would like us to cover. Uh, We'll be researching new cases, so there's never been a better time. Like I said, just email us a case you'd like to cover at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Wait, wait, wait. Just a minute. This is the season finale. We've got to bring in some bonus content. I know what you're all thinking right now. What about Annabelle? Well, Ryan, what do we know about Annabelle? The Annabelle movie takes place in Santa Monica, California. John Form, a doctor, presents his expectant wife Mia with a rare vintage porcelain doll as a gift for their first child, which is to be placed in a collection of dolls in the nursery. That night, Mia Form is disturbed by the sounds of her next-door neighbors, the Higgins, being murdered during a home invasion. John goes to investigate and returns covered in blood, telling Mia to call the police. While John goes back to investigate again, Mia hears a woman's voice from the nursery and is attacked from behind by a man who stabs her. John rushes in and fights the man, but he's overpowered and knocked unconscious. As the man tries to stab Mia again, the police arrive just in time and shoot him, while the woman commits suicide by slitting her throat inside the nursery while holding the doll. Mia is hospitalized as a result. The doctor told them that the baby is fine, but there is some damage. News reports identify the assailants as the Higgins' estranged daughter, Annabelle, and her unidentified boyfriend, both of whom are members of the Disciples of the Ram. In the days following the attack, a series of paranormal activities occur around the form's residence. Afterwards, Mia gives birth to a healthy baby girl who Mia and John decide to name Leah. The family move to an apartment in Pasadena, and after finding the doll that John had previously discarded in one of their boxes, another set of paranormal events plague Mia and Leah. The next night, Mia is haunted by a malevolent presence in the apartment. She believes it to be Annabelle's ghost after she encounters a dark and terrifying figure in the building's basement. The demonic figure begins pursuing her before she escapes by running out of the emergency exit and ascending the stairs. Mia calls back Detective Clarkin to gather more information about Annabelle and her cult and learns that the cult mainly summons supernatural beings. 
With the help of bookseller and fellow tenant Evelyn, Mia realizes that the cult practiced devil worship, which conjured a demon that followed the family after they moved to their current apartment in order to claim a soul. Upon returning home, Mia and Leah are attacked by the demon who reveals itself while manipulating the doll. Terrified and worried for their daughter's safety, Mia and John contact their parish priest, Father Perez. He informs them that demons sometimes attach themselves to inanimate objects to accomplish their goals and that a human soul must be offered for a purpose. Without any hopes of exercising the demon out of the doll, Father Perez decides to take it away and seek help from the Warrens for further investigation. However, before he can enter the church, the demon impersonating Annabelle's spirit attacks him and grabs the doll. Father Perez is hospitalized as a result, and when John checks on him, he warns John that he has sensed the demon's powerful presence and that its true intention is to claim Mia's soul. John immediately calls Mia to warn her and urges her to leave the apartment, but she doesn't get the message due to static interference. That same night, the demon uses Father Perez's physical form to sneak into the apartment and abduct Leah for her mother's soul. As messages pertaining to her soul appeared on the windows and on the ceiling, to spare her daughter, Mia attempts to jump out of the window with the doll, but John arrives just in time, along with Evelyn, to stop her. Evelyn decides to jump in Mia's place instead as atonement for causing a car accident that resulted in the death of her daughter, Ruby, years ago. While Evelyn lays dead, the doll disappears. Mia and John mourn Evelyn's sacrifice to protect them from evil. Six months later, the doll is bought from an antique shop by a mother as a birthday gift for her daughter, who is a nursing student. How does the Annabelle movie relate to The Conjuring? The Annabelle movie is a spin-off slash prequel to The Conjuring. Other than in the opening scene, it doesn't feature any of the human characters from The Conjuring. It instead focuses on the backstory of the doll that was in the possession of paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren in The Conjuring movie. The story includes a fictionalized explanation of how a demon became attached to the doll. It also somewhat reveals how the doll came to be named after a deceased young girl named Annabelle, though the 2017 prequel Annabelle Creation clarifies this further. Was the real Annabelle doll a vintage porcelain doll? Nope. The real Annabelle doll was actually a normal-looking Raggedy Ann doll, not the creepy-looking porcelain doll seen in the Annabelle movie and The Conjuring. And for me, that adds a little bit of credibility to it, just because, obviously, if you were going to come up with this idea of, hey, there's this haunted doll, you probably wouldn't pick the Raggedy Ann doll you got from Kmart a couple weeks ago. You would find <laughs> a, you know, something You'd that looks something like that the look Annabelle. Yeah, exactly. Something like really scary. Like you'd probably buy a vintage doll and like bury it for a couple of years yeah. or a couple of months and get it to look all messed up. And just don't let your daughter see you burying a doll in your backyard. <laughs> don't let anybody see you burying a doll in your backyard. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so did a husband really give the Annabelle doll to his pregnant wife as a present? No. In the movie, husband John Form gives the doll to his pregnant wife Mia as a present. But John and Mia Form are completely fictional characters. The real Annabelle doll was given as a birthday present by a mother to her daughter, Donna, a nursing student who was turning 28. Donna's mother purchased the Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store in 1970. Given the style of the real doll, it was most likely purchased new since that particular Raggedy Ann doll with the calico dress does not predate the 1970s. 
most of the Annabelle movie focuses on the vintage doll's existence prior to Donna's mother purchasing it at the hobby store, offering a fictional account of how the demon could have entered and stayed with the doll. Donna, her roommate Angie, and Angie's fiancé Lou are depicted at the beginning of the movie telling demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren about their experiences with the doll. Were the previous owners of the doll really attacked by members of a satanic cult? No, the doll's former owners, nursing students Donna and Angie, had never been attacked by members of a satanic cult who intruded into their home and subsequently passed a malevolent entity into the doll. This part of the movie is pure fiction, which takes place in 1969, the year before Donna comes into possession of the doll, which was likely purchased new, as we mentioned before. It was created to provide a fictionalized explanation as to how the demonic spirit became attached to the doll. In real life, the spirit pretends to be that of an innocent young girl named Annabelle who supposedly died while she was still a child. This correlates more with what happens in the prequel, Annabelle Creation. Did the owners really try unsuccessfully to throw away the doll? No. In the movie, husband John Form puts the doll in the trash before the couple moves, but his wife Mia later discovers it while unpacking one of the moving boxes. According to the real Annabelle doll story, the owners never tried to throw away the doll. Their home had never been broken into by satanic intruders who passed a demon into the doll, nor had the paranormal activity associated with the doll ever gotten bad enough that they wanted to throw the doll away prior to passing it along to researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren. Did they find the real Annabelle doll in different positions in different rooms? According to the Warren story, Donna, the nursing student who shared a tiny apartment with her roommate Angie, a fellow nurse, would come home to find that the doll had shifted positions. At first, its movements were subtle and confined to the bed where Donna had left the doll. However, in time, the movements became more noticeable. Donna and Angie began to discover the doll in different rooms than they had left it. It would even appear back in Donna's room with the door shut. Sometimes they found the doll with its legs crossed and its arms folded, while on other occasions it was found standing on its feet, leaning against the dining room chair. They even discovered it kneeling on a chair, which was strange because if they tried to make the doll kneel on its own, it would fall over. How long had the paranormal activity surrounding the Annabelle doll been going on? As stated in the demonologist book, strange activity involving the real Annabelle doll had been going on for about a year before paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren became involved in the case and eventually took the doll into their possession. Ed and Lorraine's meeting with the doll's owner, her roommate, and her roommate's fiancé is depicted at the beginning of both The Conjuring and Annabelle. Did the Annabelle doll leave messages? Yes, according to the story told by Ed and Lorraine Warren... Donna claimed that she would come home to find penciled messages written in childlike writing on parchment paper. The messages read, help us and help Lou, Lou being Donna's roommate, Angie's fiance, who was also living with them at the time. What made the messages even more strange was that Donna did not have parchment paper in the apartment and had no idea where it came from. Did blood appear on the Annabelle doll? Yes. According to Ed and Lorraine Warren, The doll's original owner, Donna, a nursing student, came home from work to find what looked like blood on the back of the doll's hand and three drops of blood on its chest. There was no explanation for how the red substance had gotten there. This event is what prompted the doll's owner, Donna, to contact a medium for help. In a somewhat unrelated event in the Annabelle movie, we see blood from a dying cult member drip into the doll's eye socket. 
So they found a red substance. Mm. And anytime you find a red substance and it has anything to do with the paranormal, it's always blood. Mm -hmm. Just remember that. Even always blood. blood. It can never be paint. It can never be marker. It's always blood. Even though blood turns brown, like within an hour of it. When it dries. Yeah. yeah. Like it's. Yeah. If you, I mean, I'm sure. Ryan, it's always blood. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Did the owner of the doll ever contact a medium and have a seance? Yes, although there is no seance depicted in the movie, according to the true Annabelle doll story as told by Ed and Lorraine Warren, the doll's owner Donna contacted a medium after noticing that three drops of blood had mysteriously appeared on the doll's chest. More blood was on the back of the doll's hand. The medium became involved four to six weeks after the paranormal activity first began. The medium held a seance and introduced Donna and her roommate Angie to the spirit of Annabelle, a seven-year-old girl who played in the fields that existed where Donna and Angie's apartment complex now stood. Apparently, Annabelle's lifeless body had been discovered in the fields. Out of compassion, Donna and Angie permitted the spirit that they thought was that of Annabelle to stay with them and possess the doll. It should be noted that the version of the story I just told, which is presented in the Demonologist book and is currently featured on the website of paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren, differs from the version of the story told by Ed Warren in a 1980s video tour of his occult museum. In the video, Ed states that the medium told Donna that Annabelle had died in an automobile accident outside Donna and Angie's apartment. Ed states that Annabelle was six, not seven. During that video, he also says that the Raggedy Ann doll was given to Donna by her mother as a Christmas present, not a birthday present, as the demonologist book states. Are these contradictions enough to raise doubt with regard to the authenticity of the Warren story? Well, how does the saying go? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you are investigating, cataloging, running a case of a demon possession it would be extremely important in my opinion to have the details nailed down mm -hmm. and it does give me pause for concern when it's misstated in in different sources now normally when we're doing research if we find five different sources that say four different things that kind of calls into question which is real and i think if you're going to perform exorcisms if you're going to do things like this you have to be a detail-oriented person mm -hmm. and now if this had been so this was a 1980s tour if if this had happened in, and I'm not sure when Ed passed away, but if he was 86 when this interview took place, then I would say, okay, you give him a little bit of leeway. You know, as we age, our memory fades a little bit. It may have been a long time since he had talked about the case or whatever, but being that it's so close to when it actually took place and the details needing to be nailed down in my opinion, it does give me a little bit of doubt. What about you? Yeah, same for me. Um, I was kind of thinking of the Rendlesham Forest incident, how there's discrepancies there between dates and times when things happened. I mean, things that could very simply be just writing it down wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And that's enough to make a lot of people claim that it's not real or didn't happen because you didn't have your story straight. I think it, 
I don't know. It 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 at least adds to the idea that the story has been sensationalized and you know made sure. partially fictional at least in in most of the accounts of it. And I mean, someone like this would get eaten up in court. Yeah. You know, if if a defense attorney was, you know, questioning him, th- this would be enough to just basically get his entire testimony thrown out. Yep. You know, you, you can't get any details right. Well, which was it? Was it Christmas or birthday? Yeah. How old was she? You said she was this age back then. Are you telling the truth at all? And I just feel like, yeah. So not saying that it definitely makes it untrue, but little pause for concern. Yeah. Did the demon attached to the Annabelle doll really start a kitchen fire? No, there is no evidence that the possessed doll was ever responsible for starting a kitchen fire. In fact, the entire sequence involving the fire is fictional. The demon never caused the stove to turn on, resulting in a bag of stovetop popcorn to overcook and explode into flames. At the same time, the doll's owner never injured her finger on a sewing machine. The demon also never dragged the owner across the floor back towards the fire. But has... The real Annabelle doll inflicted physical harm on anyone? Yes, but not to the degree shown in the movie. Donna's roommate's fiance Lou, had been staying with them since the doll had arrived. Lou wasn't fond of the doll and warned Donna that it was evil. One night, Lou awoke suddenly from a deep sleep and realized that he was unable to move. He saw the Annabelle doll at his feet and watched it slowly glide up his leg and over his chest. Before he knew it, the doll had begun to strangle him until he blacked out. He woke up the next morning certain that his experience wasn't a dream. On a later occasion, Lou and Angie were studying maps to prepare for a trip Lou was embarking on the next day when they heard rustling noises coming from Donna's room. Lou approached the closed door and waited for the noises to stop before entering. He turned on the light and saw Annabelle lying on the floor in a corner. He walked over to the doll, but as he did, he began to sense that someone was behind him. He spun around, but no one was there. In an instant, he found himself doubled over, grabbing his chest, which was now bleeding. Upon inspection, he discovered seven claw-like scratches on his chest, four horizontal and three vertical, that were hot, like burns. The scratches healed rapidly and were fully gone in two days. Is Alfre Woodard's character Evelyn based on a real person? No. As a trend in this back and forth, no. (laughs) In the movie, John (laughs) and Mia's neighbor Evelyn owns a local bookstore where Mia looks for books on ghosts. Evelyn is an entirely fictional character. Furthermore, no one ever sacrificed themselves in order to offer their soul to the demon that was supposedly controlling the doll. But have there been any deaths associated with the real Annabelle doll? Ed Warren believes that the doll has been responsible for at least one death. During a video tour of his occult museum in Connecticut, Ed pointed out the Raggedy Ann doll in its case. He said, quote, Many of the objects in this room here have had dire effects on people. People have been maimed, have been killed. People have wound up in mental institutions because of many of the things that are right in this building here. You have the voodoo dolls. You have the Raggedy Ann doll, which was responsible for the death of a young man who came in here one time, who challenged the doll to do its worst. And it did. The young man had apparently come to the occult museum on his motorcycle with his girlfriend for a tour. 
As Ed was giving the tour, the young man started to mock the doll, and while doing so, he ran up and began tapping on the glass case that the doll is enclosed in. He challenged the doll to put scratches on him like it had supposedly done in the past to Lou. Ed kicked the young man out of the museum. Approximately three hours later, the young man died when he lost control of his motorcycle and hit a tree. His girlfriend survived but remained hospitalized for over a year. And this was all seen on a uh, Warren's Occult Museum tour. As stated at the end of the movie, the actual doll is located in Ed Lorraine's Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. At present, tours of the Warren's Occult Museum are limited and are only being given via an intimate event called Warrenology. To learn more, head over to the Warren's website. Okay, at this point, I, I think we should point out, too, that Tony Spera, the aforementioned paranormal investigator, is actually the Warren's son-in-law. He married their daughter. He runs their YouTube channel. And as far as I can tell, runs the museum that was housed in their in their old house. I don't know if he lives in the house, but... From what I could gather, he is basically in charge of all their leftovers, for lack of a better yeah, term. Yeah, their legacy, maybe, a little bit. That's a <laughs> yeah, that's a kinder way of putting it. <laughs> Was the spirit of a dead seven-year-old girl named Annabelle really linked to the doll? According to the Warrens, Donna, who owned the doll, along with her roommate Angie, contacted a medium who held a seance with the doll present. The woman had told the medium... That there was a spirit of a seven-year-old child in the doll by the name of Annabelle, says Ed Warren, who had been killed outside of their apartment in an automobile accident. Well, there was such a child, but God does not allow a child's spirit to go into a doll. This was a devil, a demon, inside the doll which was impersonating the spirit of the child, again attributed to Ed Warren. Unlike the movie, the doll's owner never saw what appeared to be the ghost of a different seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins, who in the film grows up to start a satanic cult. In the 2017 prequel, we learn that Annabelle Higgins is actually... Please don't forget me.
Please don't forget me. Please don't forget me.